it's been circumstances rather than nature that um, put women into the place they were in the 19th century. Since it's circumstances, one needs to change the circumstances. Right. Um, give them the vote, give them the ability to leave, enter into the labor force on you know, an equal footing with men. And welcome to another installment of the Essential Scholars podcast. Today, I'm going to be joined by Sandra Peart, and we're going to have part two of our conversation about John Stuart Mill. Professor Peart is the dean, as well as the E. Claiborne Robbins Distinguished Professor in Leadership Studies at the University of Richmond. She's the author of our Essential John Stuart Mill book, as well as many other wonderful works in economic history. So great to have you back to have part two of our John Stuart Mill chat. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to this. So last time we went through, you know, his intellectual influences, um, the ideas and contributions of John Stuart Mill. But today I would love to talk a little bit about you know, what are the kinds of policy conversations that John Stuart Mill's ideas can, can help us gain a little bit more insight into those things? Uh, we talked a little bit about speech last time, and I think that's one area that we might want to explore. Uh, in Chapter 5 of On Liberty, Mill gives us a number of applications uh, of uh, the restrictions that he thinks are adequate or justified uh, on choice. Uh, he very much focuses on the consumer uh, in that chapter, and uh, so it might be things like, in terms of, kind of um, today's applications, you might think of things like seat belts, for instance, regulations on that make us wear seat belts as opposed to giving us the choice to wear seat belts, or uh, restrictions on the sales of goods that might be dangerous for us to consume. So he talks about alcohol, but you could imagine, you know, all sorts of other um, uh, goods of that sort, drugs and and uh, so on. Uh, and and when he, um, as I said earlier, when he explores those issues, he very much, as I say, focuses on the consumer. So it's not so much that they should be forbidden to be produced, uh, but there might be regulations in terms of who can consume goods uh, in, and in what capacities and so on. Uh, so that's another sort of broad issue. And then, of course, there's taxation, uh, which is, you know, super important uh, today. <laughs> uh, and then um, there's uh, just I would I would want us to think about uh, how much he's in favor of it. lots of experimentation, um, which today can be in the productive realm as well as in the consumptive realm. So I'd love to talk a little bit about um, his views about goods that can be harmful to ourselves. So you sure. brought up drugs and alcohol. If I recall, it's been a minute since I've, I've read On Liberty. But if I recall, he he really seemed to be more in favor of like your community members. If somebody has a problem consuming those goods, kind of stepping up and and you know if if, so, if a family member of mine, for example, is struggling with alcohol problems, um, he would encourage me or other family members to kind of speak up and challenge that. Um, so so what's the role for? 
you know, the community, civil society versus um, where the state might need to step in. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, goods that that might entail harm to oneself and to others. So harm to yourself, you know, is one category, but then harm to others is where he really kind of focuses in on liberty. Um, so, you know, applying that no harm principle. Um, uh, and and there he does talk about alcohol. Um, so uh, he would suggest then that there could be regulations in, in the sense of lots of information being made known to consumers. So, you know, the dangers of this good, you know, that sort of thing, labels on goods that are poisonous, for instance, for, that might have several uses, um, not all of which are harmful, you know, go ahead and sell those, but make sure people know that they're dangerous um, before they they uh, purchase them or as they purchase them. Um, but then, as you say, um, goods that might involve uh, harm to others. So, for instance, if one were to overconsume a, you know, a product and then, you know, leave the local pub, um, you know, he's talking about these little pubs on the corner and so on. Um, uh, there definitely would be a role for others to kind of step in. And so civil society for him, um, you know, one's family and then one's uh, community members, whether those are the, you know, the people we work with or the people we go to church with or, or whatever, who are, who are in similar circumstances to us, uh, they take a, on a very important role in terms of kind of making sure that we look after one another. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, not even just that, but making sure that we know what's approved of um, so that, um, uh, you know, for John Stuart Mill, as for Adam Smith, uh, there's this role uh, of sympathy or sympathetic approval or approbation. So, you know, we know it's not it's not OK to go out and and, uh, you know, overconsume this good and then, you know, put others at risk. So there's this you know role for us to police ourselves. Uh, as, but although there is also, of course, in his view, you know, a role for police to police ourselves, um, mm -hmm. but it's not a sort of, you know, constant watching um, uh, in terms of the policing, the actual physical um, police. Uh, but there is a, you know, among us as community members, a, uh, a sense, and he, he, you know, sometimes he thinks it could be even too overwhelming, you know, so the sense that public opinion could um, help us behave a certain way or make certain choices. And and he's kind of walking this dance between having that be useful, but then knowing it could be, um, you know, a little bit like Big Brother. Um, yeah, and I was going to bring up because yeah. he seems in, in other cases really frustrated with yeah. social norms and social conventions, um, right. you know, from his personal experiences yeah. and, and the effect that they had on women's choices. Yes, yes, exactly. So, you know, he lived that, as we talked about in the last episode, he lived that in the sense that, you know, he was disgraced and, and sort of, you know, um, made to lose his friendships and his uh, relationships with his family because of public opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so he knows that public opinion can play a, a detrimental role sometimes um, if, if it uh, isn't in line with, um, you know, if it's sort of, um, you know, overly, overly applied first, but also not in line with what's actually right or, or you know, what choices we should be allowed to make. Um, so, you know, he, he realizes that that's, that's a, that public opinion can play a negative role, 
Um, but he also sees that it can play a positive role if it's enforcing or reinforcing us to, you know, learn to make reasonable choices. So I wonder if his um, view of competition over, you know, speech and competition of ideas, if that is a really important thing to have at play when we're thinking about the you know, push and pull of new social norms and conventions. Right, absolutely. So, you know, in speech, he wants to see lots of speech and lots of discussion and um, discussing new ideas and experimentation and so on. And it's how we learn right? mm. by exchanging ideas with uh, with each other and by and by making choices. So we can talk about things, um, but and that's one thing, you know, and it's extremely important. But then by actually making the choices, we, we, he says, you know, learn actually more deeply. So, you know, you can, you can be told um, that if you press your, your um, tongue against a cold uh, metallic element in the middle of winter, that it will hurt. Um, or if you touch a burner um, on a stove, you know, that it will hurt. But, and you can learn that as a, as a young person. But you learn it much more fully, he would say, if you actually, you know, experiment. Now, in that case, the experiment <laughs> doesn't really work or it's not, you know, not a, a particularly great one. But yes, speech absolutely is a situation in which or a phenomenon that he thinks is is critically important for learning. And it's how we learn, um, you know, first we learn about what's what ideas are wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. So we correct ourselves through the interaction of speech. And then even if we um, have the right idea, we learn it more fully by debating it, discussing it, by explaining it to someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've ever, uh, you know, had to be a teacher or been a teacher, you know that, you know, you can learn microeconomics in your microeconomics class, but then when you actually show it to someone else, explain it to someone else, you somehow you learn it more deeply. And he, he understood that phenomenon. Yeah, I definitely know that to be true from my own personal experiences. Right. Um, so one thing you brought up reminded me of um, nudges when you're talking about John Stuart Mill's views of kind of the role for the state. Um, libertarian paternalism comes to mind. So for those who, who don't know, there was a book several years back called Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. Um, and it made a very big splash in the policy world. I think even several governments have little nudge departments uh, within their regulatory agencies. Um, so can can you speak to that? Is that an idea that is very consistent with Mill's, Mill's thoughts? Yes, so sometimes Mill comes close to sounding like a paternalist, um, but I don't think he is one. Mm -hmm. I I think he thinks that we reform ourselves. So he's very much, um, you know, um, he, he thinks that we can all improve. But the way improvement happens is uh, through a sort of internal and external discussion uh, with oneself and with others. Um, so you and I have a conversation. We talk about how we should exercise more. Um, we debate about, you know, how much more, what what ways we should exercise more, and eventually, 
you know, I come to realize that well, I should add a couple miles to the runs that I take each week or you know, something like that. Um, but it's very internal. It's not that a government has informed me through some sort of messaging or nudging that, uh, you know, when I get up today, I should take my run. Um, and and uh, the way he does skirt with what could be thought of as nudging or paternalism is this idea of public opinion. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, if public opinion is out there telling me that I should be um, taking my extra run this week, um, and then, you know, that that could be thought of as a kind of nudge. Now, it's not one that's necessarily um, sponsored by the state, mm -hmm. um, although it could be. Um, and, and his sense that there is a danger in the kind of control that public opinion could exert on each of us, I think is what makes him not an, not a paternalist. Um, uh, the, the way you can kind of interpret him as a paternalist is if you think, okay, well, you know, he's, he's letting public opinion do a lot of work. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it, it is true that public opinion uh, has a role, but the fact that he's also got this very uh, important role for discussion and speech and you and I interacting freely without mm -hmm. someone, um, you know, imposing their views on us, I think is what makes him uh, an anti-paternalist. Um, so I would put him on the non-nudge side of the sort of economic spectrum. All right, that's good to know. I wasn't really sure um, in, in reading a little bit more um, some of the, you know, providing information, yep. those yep. less intrusive type of, of nudges um, yep. seem consistent, yep. but perhaps it's you want competition over where that I, that information is coming from. You don't necessarily want it to be coming from just the state, just exactly. one source. Right. And the other thing I would say is, you know, he doesn't like this idea of settled opinions, mm -hmm. right? He's very opposed to that. So it's not that, you know, we all decide that, um, uh, you know, some good is bad for us and we never question that decision going forward. We constantly need to be questioning. Uh, and and uh, he's very much opposed to this sort of decided opinion um, and, and letting it rest at that. Now, just to complicate things a little bit, um, I would like to mention taxation um, mm -hmm. because uh, he does write that uh, he's the originator, in, in my view, of the idea of a syntax. Okay. Uh, you could think of syntax as kind of a nudge. Um, mm -hmm. So the reason he, the way he, he talk, uh, approaches this is he says, well, you know, the government, and this is a time when there is no income tax and there is a, a state, so they need mm -hmm. some revenue. And he says, well, they do need some revenue. Uh, given they need revenue, one of the things they could do is tax goods that we know are, are not good for us. So mm -hmm. tax alcohol, for instance. Um, and and so, you know, there's where we, as I say, get the idea of, of uh, you know, taxi, taxing um, uh, goods that would then induce us to consume uh, less of them. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, I just said, well, he doesn't want doesn't want the science to settle on this. So, you know, would we tax them forever? Uh, you know, possibly not if we come to realize that you know something's not as bad as we thought it was. Or, mm -hmm. or 
that would require our political institutions to have some sort of like a sunset clause where yeah. we yeah. revisit things periodically. Which of course doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, the, the yes. public choice school would suggest there's right. a bit of inertia on the part of mm -hmm. the political process when it comes right. to those types of things. Right. And I'll just say that's something he doesn't, he really doesn't address. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so easier talked about than implemented in practice, yes. like mm -hmm. many, many things that yes. we economists like to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, one thing I found interesting about Mill's view of speech, it's not that, you know, just that we come to understand our own view a little bit better, um, but we do come to appreciate another's point of view. So there's mm -hmm. that moderating of the tone of our speech and making sure that we're not being uh, obnoxious with our yeah. opinions because we actually want people to consider them seriously. Right. Um, do you, how do you think social media has affected that competition because because if i if i just use like academic twitter as an example like i steer clear of twitter because it's very mean people are very very mean um and so you know do you think there's something different about that social media space that maybe mill's view of competing ideas is you know there's something going on that it's not quite working out the way it would work if we were talking in person Yes, so I think I think that's an excellent point, uh, and and there's an additional point that I want to make related to it. But let me start with that. So, so yes, his notion of speech it may be archaic. Um, you know, it may not actually work today in the way that it did in the 19th century. Although, you know, even then people were shouting at each other. Um, you know, Parliament was a very vigorous place to, you know, speak and so on. And, and he's not just talking about Parliament, but, but um, you know, the um, other sources of speech uh, as well. Um, so uh, it may be that we we are losing our ability to listen, uh, and uh, that he's really relying on. Um, when he writes about speech. Um, and certainly it's true that, um, you know, in these very short bursts of speech, whether they're, you know, the, the nine second soundbite or the speech that you see on Twitter, um, you know, that's not the kind of speech that, that really works the way he wants speech mm. to work. Uh, and, and so that's, I think that is a problem. There's been a, a technological change but also there may be some neurological changes that are, are happening now as a result of the kind of speech that we're subjecting each other to. Um, uh, so that's a challenge uh, mm -hmm. I think for Mill. And you know, if you think about uh, when Mill is writing, you know, people are speaking in say in parliament um, or um, giving speeches at the, the uh, local um, city hall and so on, that would be you know, easily more than an hour Mm -hmm. um, people would listen to that speech before they reply to it and so on and absorb at least much of it uh, and so on. So really, it, there is a, a quite a difference. The other thing I would mention, uh, so there's technological change, um, uh, at, um, but the other thing that I think I would mention is um, that it may be that we are more uh, facts, more um, uh engaged in faction than we were in the 19th century. And again, not to say that there wasn't 
political parties, which there were back then, Tories and Whigs and so on. Um, but but today it seems like we're speaking more within our faction mm-hmm. than we were um, perhaps in the 19th century. And and you know he does write that you know through speech you can he says you can um, uh, change the minds of some people who are sort of toward the middle, but mm-hmm. you change the minds of those who are, you know, way far away from you, kind of socially mm-hmm. or politically or whatever. Um, so he's aware of the idea of faction, you know, mm-hmm. and the fact that some people just won't change their minds. Um, but, uh, you know, it, he thinks that the, those factions are a little bit more permeable, perhaps, uh, mm-hmm. than they become today. Um, so two challenges to him. Yeah. So one thing that I think about that social media space is that there is a little bit more of a level of anonymity there in a way that, you know, giving a public speech is is more closely tied to my reputation. Yes. Um, So that might be one element. Um, So interestingly, um, you know, I'll just mention he was not in favor of a secret ballot. Um, I did recall reading that. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to hear more about that. Right. Well, so it has to do with this anonymity. You know, he thinks that if you can hide behind anonymity, you will you will do things differently um, than you would if you have to actually make public what your choices are. Uh, and so, um, and, and again, it's you know, it's this kind of interesting dance with public opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you know that um, public opinion will will judge you poorly if you make a particular choice, um, then you know, you shouldn't be able to hide behind uh, a lie or, you know, um, voting voting silently and, and not making that choice uh, known mm-hmm. to others uh, if you know it's right and you're going to claim that you've done something else. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's an interesting argument and it, it's a little surprising uh, when mm-hmm. you come across it. Yeah, that is that is interesting. But I do think it ties into this Twitter um, to the anonymity point mm-hmm. because you know people will people will be much meaner uh, if they can do do so behind uh, an anonymous wall, uh, and uh, you know his his idea that we're going to exchange or his argument that we'll exchange ideas and think about what the other person has said. I mean, it only works if there is public interaction, right? If there yeah. if people know who's saying what. And if you're interacting with p- opinions that actually differ from your own and you're not right. just selecting, exactly. you know, news sources that confirm your own biases and you're not just interacting with people online that have the exact same view that you have. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, so I'm not sure really how he would get us out of this kind of situation. I mean, given yeah. his, you know, his writing, uh, but I do think he would be deeply worried about the increase in anonymity um, and the deep increase in sort of factionalized um, discussion. Yeah. I, I too, am a bit worried about those things yes. in terms of the effect of exchange of ideas. Yeah. Um, and I so guess I'm going to switch gears yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, you know, given Mill's work. Uh, that on feminist issues, I would love to know, um, you know, how the modern feminist movement uh, could be 
you know, ha maybe has been influenced by Mill. It seems like modern feminism wants something quite a bit different than what Mill was talking about. So how would we kind of bring Mill to our modern conversations about feminist issues? Yeah, so um, I think he's, so his, his main point is that um, it's been circumstances rather than nature mm -hmm. that um, put women into the place they were in the 19th century. Um, so that's that's the big argument that you know does a lot of work for him. And and since since it's circumstances, one needs to change the circumstances. Right. Um, give them the vote. Give them the ability to leave enter into the labor force on you know an equal footing with men uh, and so on and then really you know I think he thinks the, the that uh, things will work themselves out um, uh, and and you know for instance he says if women can enter the labor market then uh, their choices to have children will uh, will differ radically from what we observe in, in 19th century England um, and you know he was right on that one in terms of the um, the predictive element. Um, lots of people who wrote after him um, uh, objected to that argument and, and and countered that you know they would just have too many children and the the infant mortality rates would go up and so on. Um, but but uh, you know his point was women don't necessarily choose to have sixteen children. Um, it's you know just something that um, <laughs> uh, is. Sort of forced on them, uh, and uh, if they enter the labor force and they're able to make the marriage choice or a marriage choice or a choice about their living arrangements, put it that way, um, uh, then things would would uh, change radically. So you know, bringing that into the 21st century, um, uh, again, you know, I think I think um, he he would suggest that. Um, we've accomplished pretty much what he would want to see us accomplish. Um, mm -hmm. He wouldn't necessarily want to make, say, special special allowances or have quotas necessarily, mm -hmm. you know, for women to be in certain positions or whatever. I think he would be, you know, ra uh, very disappointed in sort of glass ceilings that exist. Mm -hmm. um, in his view, you know, it, it, um, it you would see a sort of relatively similar distribution of women uh, in lots of positions for which they are qualified um, than we actually observe uh, mm -hmm. in markets. And so, you know, how would he address that? And um, uh, I don't think he would favor a, an intervention to force right. that to equalize. Um, uh, but I think, again, he would want to see some maybe some public opinion doing some work there yeah it seems like kind of the modern policies that that feminists push are things like quotas mandated you know paid parental leave and those types of things which if we think about it from an economic freedom type perspective actually infringes on the tr ability for the employers to make yeah. choices about who they think is best for the position. Right, right. Um, so that seems very inconsistent with what, what, what Mill would. Yes, and in terms of paid leave, you know, I mean, I think he would, I think he would believe that 
or forecast that women would want to spend time with their children after they were born. Um, and uh, he would um, he would favor the sort of experimentation that um, uh, allows them to, you know, find someone to look after their children when they're very young and so on. Um, uh, but all of that can be arranged privately. Yeah. Um, and I think he would just think, you know, that uh, if if men and women uh, or, or partners with children um, are on equal footing, they can kind of figure out, you know, when the children will stay home with the, one of the partners and when the children will be in school and so on, or in a daycare arrangement or something like that. I don't think you would see that that's a, that offers up a huge um, opportunity for the state to intervene and say, you know, you must have two years paid leave or, you know, whatever, uh, parental leave. It also seems like, you know, as a as a woman who has some opportunity to choose who to work for, right. I might, if I wanted to have kids, try to choose an employer that offers policies that are very friendly to that, as opposed to, you know, if you're like me and you actually don't want kids, right, I can have a, a different set of choices uh, open to me. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, just the, the choice to have children and then, uh, and you know, how to how to bring them up. That's mm -hmm. something very private, I think, in his view. So um, one thing that when you were when you were talking about, you know, women's ability to choose and kind of giving them equal footing, it reminded me of a conversation that I had with some of my friends uh, recently about the work of economic sociologist Vivian Salazar. Um, who was doing some interesting interviews about women who now had their own sources of income and, right. you know, like what kind of changes did this make for your life? Right. And what stood out to, to my one of my friends was that she had said, um, she found a woman that said, you know, now I feel like, you know, I can make my own choices about, you know, when to be intimate with my husband. I don't always feel obligated. I have my own source of income, right? And so, you know, economic freedom, it has these other really tangible benefits for, for women's lives that we don't, that don't always seem very obvious. Right, right. And he was entirely aware of that, you know, so, and partly through Harriet uh, Taylor, I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, just observing her situation, but you know the fact that you you couldn't own property outside of marriage was you know a, just a horrible institutional arrangement that he thought degraded both men and women. Um, and and you know you're absolutely right. Once you can can be independent, I mean, income is really uh, a source of independence. Um, that's it's instrumental to independence. It's not, it's not so much that, you know, the income itself is so, you know, important, although, uh, uh, or, I mean, it's the means to an end. It's the right. means to be able to choose. Uh, and he absolutely saw that and saw that, you know, both, you know, the extremely poor people about whom he's writing, um, but also, you know, an entire half of the population um, were not independent. They couldn't make choices um, because they didn't have the money to do so. So, yeah, you've absolutely hit on what's, I think, a key point here. So 
we don't have too, too much time left. So I wanna give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about um, what are some ideas that and contributions of mill that you think have been misunderstood? Like, what would you like to set the record straight on? There might be a lot of things, but. Yeah, so, um, well, so I do think um, his idea of economic progress perhaps has been misunderstood. Um, and I want to just mention that because it's not just, and it has to do with this income um, argument, it's not just all physical stuff for him. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's mixed up with, you know, what that physical stuff or what that income, if you want to make it in monetary terms, allows us to do, mm -hmm. right? And so progress is not, you know, people sometimes see him as, as kind of having this, um, you know, all economic um, sort of notion, um, but it it's not just, um, economic progress or progress in terms of how much we can own, but it's also how much choice we've got in terms of our thoughts, in terms of our abilities to be creative, in terms of the leisure that we have, uh, and so on. So it's a much more expansive notion uh, than just simply, you know, economic stuff that we could produce. So I wanted to mention that. Um, I would as well, I mentioned education last um, last time we spoke, and I want to just uh, make sure I, that we're clear on that because Mill thinks education is extremely important and sees a role for the state in requiring education, but he does not want the state to monopolize it. Um, mm -hmm. so it should not be the only provider of education. Um, and really, he's talking at the what we now call K through 12, um, mm -hmm. the elementary uh, kinds of education. Um, uh, but uh, it is not for him the case that the state should be the only provider. In fact, though he thinks it's all right for the state to provide some, it's dangerous for the state to provide it all. Um, so so that I think that's really important to keep in mind. Then I would also mention, you know, this the whole flirtation with socialism, which mm. sometimes gets Mill in trouble because, you know, people think, oh, Mill is a socialist. Uh, and and Hayek, for instance, uh, Friedrich Hayek thought that Mill went down that road, and many other people do as well. And, uh, you know, I've read Mill a lot, you know, more than once, certain parts of Mill and, and a lot of Mill. I can't say I've read every word that he wrote. Uh, but I, though he's very open to uh, the idea of, of socialistic experiments um, taking hold, uh, they would do so only if they uh, still require or have some role for property uh, and some role for competition, uh, and they expand they um, expand voluntarily. So you and I could form some sort of you know socialist arrangement with some friends of ours and so on. And we could still own some stuff. We could share the fruits of our labor in various ways that we decide on. Um, but he is not someone who is in favor of a state-imposed socialism. Um, and, and so it's quite different from how we think of socialism today. Um, he's not a socialist. <laughs> I also kind of interpreted those conversations as Mill just taking those arguments seriously and, and, and giving them their due consideration, which is 
it entirely consistent with his view on how we should exchange ideas. Yes, yes, th that's exactly right. And, you know, Mill, one reason he wrote so much is he does take every idea he hears or knows about seriously. So then he has to work through, you know, okay, is this one a good one? Is this one a good one? And, uh, uh, and so on. So um, you're exactly right. He, um, he took the Saint-Simonians seriously. He took Charles Fourier seriously. He took Auguste Comte seriously. Um, he, you know, then wrote to uh, uh, wrote that Comte was entirely wrong, uh, and the reason he was wrong—not entirely, but um, one reason that he was wrong—and uh, that Mill um, ended up uh, being critical of his system is that he said you cannot come up with a single goal for society. You can't come up for, with a single goal for a person. I mean, we have multiple goals constantly that we're um, seeking to achieve, and and you know, multiply that you know through the myriad goals that we have uh, across all people. There's no, it's just not possible to say you know, okay, we want two percent GDP growth. You know, that's it. That's mm -hmm. that's what you know. And then how do you achieve it? Uh, and so uh, he's very much. Uh, uh, cognizant of the fact that it um, impose, you know, having a goal for society means you have to go down an authoritarian route. Uh, and he mm -hmm. says, you know, that's, that's the choice. If you, if you decide you're going to settle on a particular goal, it won't be the goal of everyone. And so to achieve it, you have to impose it on society, on the people who are in that society. So very, you know, very much um, uh, in line with than what Friedrich Hayek writes in The Road to Serfdom. And a lot of Don Lavoie's work, you know, National <laughs> Economic Planning, What's Left, that's what you just reminded me so much of the, of the power problem. So I can definitely see Mill's influence on the Austrians for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so you brought up education, which um, you, know, you live in the United States as I do, and we just got some news. I don't know if you've seen these uh, headlines that our math and reading scores have really plummeted in in the past couple of years. How might you know how? What might Mill suggest to? to do to improve the quality of education, right? We have a system, the state is very involved. Um, you know, what would Mill say that we can do better? Um, and so, it's, I mean, this is not just unique to the United States, right? This right. is something right. that could be applicable anywhere. Right, yes. So I do think the idea of competition would be something he would lean heavily on. Um, and, and you know we clearly don't have a lot of competition in the world of um, K through 12 education, um, and and so uh, you know in terms of why those scores plummeted, I'm not sure he would come up with a you know a, an analysis of those. But I do think that his notion of education is one uh, which, frankly, would be um, uh, much more targeted toward a few subjects. He he writes. Uh, he gives a speech at uh, St. Andrews when he's inaugurated as the um, the uh, rector there uh, when the university opens, and there he outlines, you know, what he thinks education should be, should consist of, uh, and it's uh, it's fair, fairly rudiment, not I don't mean rudimentary, but fairly uh, tied to you know some basic. Uh, subject matters um, uh, that that should be part of uh, a good education, 
um, but then also, um, you know, I'll, again, I would go to, you know, experimentation and competition and, and uh, discussion. Um, you know, he says in that speech that we all uh, are biased in our thinking initially. We want to believe a certain thing and, you know, we, we will believe it until we're challenged. Um, and only if we're challenged will we come to uh, understand that, oh, you know, that was, that was a predisposition that I had uh, to be in favor of, you know, this or that uh, and so on. He's really looking to, you know, improve education so that people who are voting right, will be able to understand political arguments. Uh, yeah. And I think he would be worried about reading and math scores because, uh, you know, they're not, if, if reading and math scores are low and dec decreasing, um, uh, people are not going to be able to understand basic arguments, basic statistical information that they're presented by politicians or by you know, civil servants. Um, and, and that will lead them to make poor choices. And then we end up with, you know, in a, 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 the sort of situation we're in today. So. Yeah. And yeah. so his his kind of view on education was very much um, something that was essential for you know democratic institutions to, yes. to function well. Right, right, absolutely. And and you know basic education that and when I say basic, I mean you know math and reading mm -hmm. education. Those were important for democratic skills um, mm -hmm. and, uh, because they're important for understanding, as I say, the sort of whole bunch of information that we get thrown at us um, uh, and. So, you know, whereas today, I think we can, we tend to say, well, you know, education is important for democracy, but, you know, what's important is, you know, we should, we should learn about social science or we should, you know, learn um, these other, you know, non-reading, non-analytical uh, things, uh, although there's reading and analysis mm -hmm. involved, but he would really, I think, focus on, as I say, the math and, and reading, uh, mm -hmm. which, I mean, he read Greek and, and Latin, you know, at a very young age, so. He's way ahead of us. <laughs> yeah, he's way more ambitious than I think I could ever be. Yes. Me as well. <laughs> um, so speaking of readings, at the end of the Essential Scholars or the Essential John Stuart Mill book, you do provide a really wonderful list of additional resources for those who might be interested in learning more. Um, in addition, are there any you know blogs, podcasts, anything out there that you might want to you know give a shout out to that people might want to look into? Oh, so that's a great question. Um, well, so I'm an economist. I would you know I I think Marginal Revolution is a great one to check. Um, mm -hmm. I, I really um, uh, enjoy that. But in terms of John Stuart Mill, not sure I know of any particular blogs that would. You know, focus on on uh, uh, Mill's work uh, so much. Maybe we should start one. I was going to say, it sounds like a hole in the market that That's we true. should get out there and yeah. encourage people to go start John Stuart Mill blogs. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um. <laughs> so, any last words? Any final final thoughts that you want to leave us on with regard to Mill? Well, I'll, thank you for giving me the chance. I guess I would just again repeat that you know Mill is very much in favor of us improving, but the way we improve is we improve ourselves. So we talk to people, we read things, we discuss things with people, and we learn 
the kind of person that we should we would like to be. It's a little bit like James Buchanan, um, the artificial man. You know, we kind of figure out as we go through life, and it takes a while. We don't always get it right, but we figure out, you know, who's the kind of person we'd like to be, uh, and and then how to be that person. And we're sort of constantly evolving ourselves, but we're doing it our. And I don't mean to say, you know, ourselves like in isolation, you know, we're doing it with others, mm -hmm. uh, but we're doing it um, without someone telling us uh, this is who you should be. We are directing it. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed that conversation and I hope that listeners did as well. Um, I hope everybody goes out there and, and makes some good and bad choices and learns from them. Yes, thank you. I really enjoyed it as well. You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to essentialscholars.org to learn more. See you next time.